Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest the Reverend Dr. Ted Goshorn. Ted is the senior pastor of Mulberry Street United Methodist Church. This is a historic congregation in the heart of downtown Macon, Georgia. Ted is a second career pastor, and he'll get into that when he introduces himself a little bit more at the beginning of the interview. I have him on the podcast. I met him in March when I was doing a prayer workshop at the Glenville Methodist Church. And Ted is an outstanding teacher on prayer, and he has a great book that's available um, on Amazon and in other places that's called Prayer Changes Us. As you're going to hear in the interview, Ted has a unique ability to describe the profound nature of prayer using simple metaphors, clear explanations, and he has great tips on how to either begin a prayer life or to make your present prayer life even more robust and meaningful. And that includes tips for how to share prayer with your children and also how to do it with your spouse. I love this conversation. I invite you to check out all of the links in the show notes, including links to buy Ted's book, Prayer Changes Us. Now, before jumping into the interview, if you're interested in Centering Prayer, which will come up several different times besides Ted's book, uh, you can check out my resources, I invite you to sign up at centeringprayerbook.com and I'll send you information on how to get a centering prayer practice started. And also you'll get invitations to the monthly centering prayer gathering that I co-host with my fellow centering prayer author and teacher, Rich Lewis. If you're also interested in finding out a little bit more about me, you can check out brianrussellphd.com. Now let's jump into this interview with Ted Goshorn and learn how prayer changes us. Hi, Ted. Welcome to the Deep Dive Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And it was really fun. I met uh, Ted back in March of 2023. We were able to do a a prayer conference together up in South Georgia, and I really loved uh, his teaching. And he has a great book on prayer, very clearly written, great stories, and very uh, helpful information. It's called Prayer Changes Us. And to kind of get into the conversation, Ted, can you share you know, briefly some of the key moments in your spiritual journey that led you to ministry and then ultimately to writing a book on prayer? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I was a higher education administrator and um, student affairs in particular, and that was going to be my career. And I had this, uh, as many of us, you know, we'll talk about with calls to ministry, I had this just kind of disturbance in my soul. And it surprised me because I had spent um, a few years functionally agnostic. And when we moved to Macon, uh, my wife said to me, I'm taking you to, like, I'm going to church. And I figured I better go for the health of my marriage and came back into faith, um, you know, had recommitted my life to Christ, joined a church, a Methodist church here, which is how I ended up a Methodist pastor. Um, And as a part of being at that church, felt that what I eventually was able to understand was a call to ministry. And prayer was a big part of that call. Um, There was a day that I remember I just was so frustrated and not being able to understand this disturbance that I threw myself on our bed and I said, okay, God, whatever this is, I'm done trying to figure it out. You just make it clear to me. So 
within a few days, I was walking into my boss's office and just kind of had some understanding that my boss, who was a vice provost at Mercer University, uh, was also an ordained Methodist elder. And but just yeah, that was kind of off my radar. But I knew she also went for runs and tended to pray while she was running. So uh, I walked into her office. I had like a purchase order to get signed or something, you know, mundane. And she said, you know, I've been thinking about you on my runs. Have you ever thought about becoming a pastor? And my purchase order, whatever, turned into like a two hour long conversation. And I realized this is what I had been looking for. And, you know, became a pastor from there. So, um, in fact, very quickly, I think 11 months after that conversation, I had my first church, like went from wow. beginning the candidacy process in the United Methodist Church to under appointment, having left my job, changed careers, started seminary, um, lots of prayer in that process, of course. So, you know, those Jay um, Pendleton, the person, I, um, my former boss, now mentor, and so Jay and then um, Jay's prayer and then my prayer, you know, were really crucial in understanding my sense of call. So then in the introduction to the book, I talk about being tasked with starting a Tizay service at Mercer and not knowing what that was, having read a book, which is a great book by, uh, it's called The People Called Tizay by Justin Brian Santos, and um, running into that prayer service at a conference I was at in Chicago, um, at a fourth Presbyterian church in Chicago. So I got to experience it. And that was really my introduction to contemplative style prayer. And that has been transformative for me. Um, I really think that there are, we are, as we are different in personalities and in temperaments, there are different forms of prayer that work better for others. Um, you know, you talk, I think, Brian, some of that in your book on centering prayer that is also I highly recommend, um, you know, that centering prayer is something that can be helpful for a lot of people, but may not be for everyone. And so, you know, for me, contemplative prayer opened a way of praying that has been crucial for me moving forward. Um, and then I'd say the last thing in, in those those significant moments you said from call story to writing my book um, is church members sometimes have a prophetic word to share with us. And Martha Wright, who I dedicated the book to, is that person who said she just felt very strongly um, from her own prayer life that I needed to write a book on prayer. And she badgered me about it until I did it. Um, and she was absolutely right. And I'm glad that she you know, responded to the movement of the Holy Spirit in her life. I love that. And what did you learn? I mean, obviously, you'd written some things before you wrote manuscripts. I don't know how much you wrote for your job, but um, what tips do you have for other pastors, maybe, that are trying to write a book while you know doing the work of ministry? Yeah, um, I think it's a great question, and it certainly helps for me that I've always I think by writing, and so my process for crafting sermons involves a lot of writing. Um, so when I went to write a book on prayer, what Martha was saying was she had found my sermons on prayer so helpful that she thought those ought to be turned into chapters and then put together. So I was able to comb back through my manuscripts, pull sermons out, make adjustments, you know, where I was calling the church to do something, you know, make that a more general call or whatever, you know, language referring or whatever. Um, and then I had, I read back through those, came up with 
a theme. You know, I didn't go into it saying I want to talk about the impact prayer has on us. Um, but I found that to be a theme and then figured out where the holes were and had to do some writing to fill those holes. Um, so I think it's, if I wasn't writing my own sermons, I'm not sure how I would answer the question um, if I wasn't writing manuscripts. But so for somebody who is writing a manuscript, I think to run that process, but to also set aside some dedicated time um, is really helpful. And so that's what I did. I booked um, a few days uh, away and went through this process. Um, and then I booked another few days away to finalize the manuscript. Um, and then, you know, I imagine you know this to be true too, but finding a publisher is really hard. Um, I got a lot of rejections, so be willing to accept rejection. Um, and part of, and so that's part of what has me very grateful for the South Carolina Advocate Press, because that's who picked up my book, and um, they've given me an opportunity that uh, I really wanted and was struggling to find. Um, so yeah, be willing to maybe think outside the box of the the big publishers that everybody has on their shelves. Um, and approach other publishers because at least for me that's that's what's worked for me yeah that's great advice because it is it isn't easy to get a, a publishing contract with most of the the big publishers at all um and so it is good to i mean there's and there's lots of small presses like you just said and what's the difference between a small press and a big press not a lot ultimately and mm -hmm. uh, you still have to do your own marketing and i also love just the practical take if you're a manuscript writer yeah pastors write who knows what a thousand words a week 1500 depending on how long your manuscript is I mean most of us probably have multiple books if we just took some time and sorted through some of that good stuff so I, I love that so thank you well let's jump into the meat of the conversation which is about prayer mm -hmm. uh, and let's start with just the absolute basics um you know, what is prayer how do you what's how do you just kind of define that how do you open up a conversation about prayer with the you know what is it yeah it's a great question. I love that, um, it's, that we start with such a basic question because I think people come to prayer with certain assumptions, and prayer is so much larger than what those assumptions might be. Um, I think prayer is anything we do that causes us to connect with God. Uh, I think about the verse, you know, deep calls to deep, you know, and so whatever we can do maybe not whatever, maybe I shouldn't be that broad, but the things that we do that connect our depth with God's depth, um, that yeah. bring us home to the heart of Christ. You know, that's where my book ends is that prayer should bring us home to the heart of Christ. Um, and so I think there are many things out there that can be acts of prayer if they cause us to be able to connect with God. And, and one of the things I appreciate about the way you teach uh, is is you you cover a variety of prayers and and you have a really interesting appendix where you have a lot of um, it's a lot of helpful information in the back, including you know scriptures and how to pray scripture and, and such. Uh, so, what are some of the different types of prayers that you found helpful that ultimately you cover in in the within the covers of your book? Yeah, um, I think the daily office is something that's been really meaningful for me. Um, you know, there's a variety of forms out there. I'm currently using a subscription service um, by, it's called Word on Fire. It's Catholic. Mm, and yeah. uh, so the, occasionally I'll run into things, you know, blessed be the Virgin Mary or something. And I just skip over that. It's not my tradition. Um, but by and large, it does a great job of putting the daily office into a really easy to use 
um, uh, pray three times a day kind of space. And I appreciate how much scripture is involved as part of what I like about the daily office. Um, I appreciate the thought that, you know, around the world at the same time of day, even if it's not the exact time, um, there are people praying with me and uh, engaging in the same way. Um, I also really appreciate centering prayer and, um, you know, your book on that, that you were teaching about that same prayer conference um, does a great job of laying out what it is, how to do it, very practical kind of guide that I was able to pull some stuff from even with my own practice over the past several years, um, because silence has been so important to my prayer life. If it's embedded into the daily office, if it's centering prayer proper, um, if it's uh, part of a, a, a contemplative style worship service, um, it's just that has been so important because we get bombarded with so much noise and to be able to take that silence and the more I've found that I've been able to practice that, the easier it is to enter into that space, um, clear my mind. And I'll say, you know, before you hit record, we were talking about the the busy day I've had where I felt pulled in a bunch of directions. And um, I had a few minutes between meetings before I hopped on this Zoom call and I took some silence, some space to just be present with God so that I wasn't coming into this frazzled, um, but also because I knew my soul needed to return to its home, being pulled in a lot of directions. Um, the last thing I'd say is there's this great book called Praying with Bread. It looks like a children's book. It's got illustrations like it, um, but it's written for adults, and it's a very practical way of doing Ignatian examine, and I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, and so what my family has gotten in a habit of doing is around the dinner table, our form of prayer is we say, what am I most grateful for today? And what am I least grateful for today? And when we do that over a series of days, it helps us see where God is moving and doing good things in our lives and in how God is addressing the things that we're least grateful for as well. Um, and that's something I've got a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old, almost 13. And we started this when they were a couple of years younger. And so even when Carter, my youngest, was five, like he could grasp that, you know, his most grateful for might be, you know, he got to play with a particular toy in kindergarten that day or whatever. But it's still something that he could grasp and contribute to. And so I, I've really found that to be powerful for our family. No, I love that. And, and you mentioned just the power of silence and you mentioned how distracting it is. Are you, I'm just, this is an authentic question. Are you, are you sensing that people are rediscovering silence uh, at this point, or maybe it's just me that uh, it became important to me? I mean, what's, what's your take on, on that, uh, the importance of silence in say the modern church? Yeah, I think, I think they are. Um, two things come to mind for me. One is I just finished teaching my book here at the church I serve, and that was something they had requested, and I was really honored by that. Um, and silence was one of the big things they took away, um, you know, the ability to be silent. And related to that is stillness. Um, we move at a very frenetic pace, and people are very busy. And to be invited to be still for the sake of being still and seeing what God has to say in the midst of that, um, I think is really important. Um, and I think people are rediscovering that. The next thing I'm teaching on is Sabbath practice. 
Um, and I think that's probably going to be the next thing I write a book about. And part of Sabbath is stillness. Yes. So, and I, I think, I, I don't want to get off on too far of a tangent here, but but Sabbath invites us to be still and understand that life isn't moved from obligation to obligation. Life should be moved in a rhythm of delighting in the things that God has given us to delight in and then drawing from that well to be able to give to others by responding to the ways that we are uh, obliged to do things in this life. I, I love that. That's that's really profound. Talk about your title, Prayer Changes Us. And in your mind, how does prayer change us? So uh, as a good Methodist, I want to talk about moving uh, on down toward perfection yeah. uh, and you know, getting pulled farther down the uh, uh, path of sanctification. Um, and so that's a very Wesleyan way of saying, I think, prayer changes us by bringing us deeper into the heart of God, mm. um, where our true home lies. Um, it grows us in holiness. Um, an image I've used, and I can't remember if I said this at that prayer conference or not, um, but I think about how we're all born with the Imago Dei, the image of God, and that it gets shrouded by sin. And that the more we are able to draw closer to God, further into the heart of God, the more that shroud is um, either lifted or just uh, isn't as dense. So that the image of God that exists within us is able to shine through um, more so than it was able to before. And, you know, when we draw closer to God in that way, we encounter our own brokenness. And that's a hard thing to do. But in encountering that brokenness, we're also healed because the presence of Christ heals us in those broken places. So I think prayer changes us by causing us to encounter those broken places, but because we're encountering them inside the heart of God, we're able to experience healing in a way that um, might not be possible otherwise. I love that. That's a really, it's one of the clearest explanations I've heard. So, so thank you for, uh, for that. That's awesome. And so given that, I mean, so what are obstacles to prayer? Because it's like, you hear this stuff and like, geez, why didn't everybody do that? So like, what are, what are you find as a pastor or maybe even in your own personal life? What are the, what are the biggest problems that we run into to have a consistent prayer life? Yeah. I think, you know, just what we were saying before, being too busy is one of those, um, you know, not crafting time for stillness, um, living a life where, we wake up and we're rushing out the door and then it's just rushed from thing to thing. Like as if we're a, you know, a ball in a, a pinball machine until we crash at the end of the day. So um, I think we have to be willing to cultivate that space to be still in order to engage in prayer. Um, and that's, you know, I, I talked at that prayer conference about how we form habits. And, you know, I think that's why it's so important to figure out how to form a habit um, I also think an obstacle to prayer is we think that it only is talking to God. We have a very narrow mindset about what that looks like mm -hmm. um, and not recognizing that we're also, prayer should cause us to hear from God. Prayer should cause us to sense God in our lives. Um, prayer is not just giving God a laundry list. And I think related to that is, and I had somebody point this out to me um, when, here at the church when I was teaching the book. She said, we teach prayer as transactional when we're teaching prayer to children. Mm. That if you want something, pray to God, 
and hope that God says yes. And then grow up with this very, you know, you hear the, the old thing about God answers prayers, yes, no, or wait, which I just think is a terrible way to talk about prayer um, because it says prayer is transactional. If I am maybe a good person or praying in the right way or asking for the right thing at the right time, then God will grant what I'm asking for. And almost as if God is some sort of genie to keep happy. Um, and that prayer should be about communing with God in the loving relationship that we should have with God and understanding the power of being loved unconditionally uh, and allowing that to change us so that we are then able to go and offer that unconditional love into the world. Um, and so a part of what I'm finding is that I'm having to educate about how prayer is not transactional and then be able to say what prayer is instead. I love that. And any thoughts on how did it how did prayer just become transactional? Because I think that I mean that's that's really clear what you what you said. And that just I mean that's that just rings true. So like how how do why do you think that ever just happened? Do you have any sense? Hmm. That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, if I think back over the course of of Christian history, you know, I can see even in the medieval period where where that's what's being advocated for. Um you know, you think about the old legend about where Hocus Pocus comes from, you know, that, do you know that, familiar with that Re legend? Remind, I think I've heard it, but so it's something, it something to do with the, with Latin, but yeah, tell everybody, because I'm not sure if you know, anybody's heard that. gathered in the cathedrals, didn't understand Latin, mass is being done in Latin, and to further complicate things, you know, they faced east at the time, and so the priest's back is to the congregation, so he says, hoc est, I'm not going to remember the rest of it. It's like um, something about the body, right? Corp. Yeah, something. it's the yeah. moment where they ring the bell in yeah. mass, and the body, the bread becomes, in Catholic understanding, the body of Christ. So, you know, ring the bell, and they, people just know something magical has just happened. And with the cathedrals or the churches, the back of the priest facing the people, no amplification except for what's designed into the building. And so they don't hear hoc est m whatever the rest is, they hear hocus pocus and think it has magical connotations. And so I think like you think maybe there's something in our tradition about the priest is able to say things that causes God to do things. Mm. And so then shouldn't we all be able to do that? I think that's probably part of it. Um, but then you think like the Psalms are constantly asking for God to do things. And so maybe there's a misunderstanding that's born there of we need to ask God to do things for things to happen and then hope that God agrees with us instead of what the way I encounter the Psalms is the people are saying, this is the desire of my heart. This is what I am longing for. And I'm giving God, I'm giving you God those longings because I want to be made perfect in those longings. I want to understand what it is that you God are longing for and be a part of that. I want to just share what I'm going through the way that we would with a, a spouse or a friend that we're, you know, I'm going to say deeply in love with, but we can be deeply in love with friends, right? Like we have that, that really close bond. I just want to share God with you that that's where I am because I love you and you love me and not have an expectation in return. Um, that's that's what I encounter in the Psalms. Just like sometimes I go to my wife and I say, this is what I'm dealing with. And I kind of verbally dump, you know, not expecting that Dana can fix those things, but that I just need to get it out and experience the love that comes from saying, yeah, that's tough. 
So are you dealing with that? You know, let me give you a hug and, you know, tell you it's going to be okay. And, you know, I, I think there's real power in that. Um, so maybe there's a misreading of the Psalms in there. Um, I bet you if I sat here for another five minutes, I could come up with more things. But at, off the top of my head, um, I think there might be something there. No, that's good. Thank you. And one of the favorite th uh, pieces of your teaching is I appreciated you brought in kind of some of the, I don't know, I'd call it personal development stuff about how to form habits. Um, and you mentioned, I think, Charles Duhigg. And I can't remember if you mentioned any of the other authors, but you brought some of the how to create a habit stuff into your prayer mm -hmm. teaching, which I thought was super practical and helpful. Could you teach, a, uh, just spend a little time talking through the importance of actually create a container for your prayer life or rhythms or um, routines or yeah. however you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll talk about it uh, from the perspective of, uh, it was Charles Duhigg. Uh, his book is called The Power of Habit, um, totally secular book. Uh, and the first four chapters talk about how to form and stop habits personally. The other chapters talk about, you know, corporately or, you know, in community or whatever. So on a personal level, what he, he kind of says kind of like matter, you know, habits can cannot be destroyed. They can be created unlike matter, but they can't be destroyed because once we have the habit, what we need to do is change it. But when we want to create a habit, he says, we need to link the thing we want to start to something we're already doing so that it creates a craving. So he talks about, um, well, I'll just give you an example. You know, when I read the book and I was irregular in my prayer life, when I encountered the book, I said, okay, I'm going to try this out. And I'm going to start praying when I, after I pour my second cup of coffee, first cup of coffee, I'm useless, right? So second cup of coffee, I'm going to go back to my chair and I'm going to um, engage in prayer. And if you'll do that for about 21 days, is what he said, on kind of on average, then it forms a craving, meaning after that three-week period, I go pour the second cup of coffee, I have got to go pray. I can't not pray. It's so ingrained in me. So what he means by craving is not like, you know, oh, I'm craving sugar and I've got to have it. It's more like the, the impulse of, I have to do this thing next. I can't skip it. Um, and one of the things he'll link to in, in describing that is to say, you know, watch yourself when you get in the car. We all have a habit of the order that we do things in. And if something throws us out of that sequence, then we might miss a step. And so, the, you know, he'll say, like, if you get partway down the road and realize you're not wearing your seatbelt because the car is dinging at you, something threw you out of your sequence because there's a point at which you naturally put the seatbelt in. You don't even think about it. So I would say in a practical way um, and just doing this very quickly, link your prayer practice to something you're already doing so that it becomes a craving and do it for 21 days. That's good. I uh, uh, I love that. And I love that clear example of just doing it with your with your coffee. And I know that's uh, uh, my wife and I do centering prayer and we literally do. We get up and have a cup of coffee, you know, wake up for a couple minutes and then, you know, we sit there 
halfway through a cup of coffee, it's time just to drop into the sit there. So, I mean, I, and that just anchors the whole day, makes it, it's just super easy. I don't have to think about it. So I you know, thank you for making that so, so clear. And you mentioned already a way that you use like a form of the prayer of uh, examine with your family around the, the table with the form of some questions. Uh, what other tips do you have for either couples to be able to pray together or include your children uh, would be uh, beyond that if you've, if you've thought about that? I have. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things, you know, my wife and I had this conversation when we were tired of the wake up, rush out the door kind of life we were living. We said, we're going to wake up a little earlier and we're going to establish a morning routine. And so we're praying at the same time, but we're not praying together. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Like we're engaged mm -hmm. in our own prayer practices and like you just said about you and your wife's practice, it anchors our day. Um, and all, it, you know, and I remember it feeling like this big sacrifice when we first started, but like waking up a half an hour earlier is not really that big of a deal in the end. And that's what it was for us. It was a half an hour of wake up, pour the coffee, you know, sit there with the cup, cup of coffee for a minute. And then when you pour the second cup of coffee, pray, and then go wake up the children and get them dressed and ask them why they did not already pack their lunch. And, you know, my son got dressed, we have to wear uniforms. My son got dressed in the dark this morning and came out wearing jeans that he thought were Navy blue pants, which is what he has to wear. And we were like, you got to go back in the room and put on the Navy blue pants. And, you know, like there's, there's, there's chaos in getting out the door in the morning. And so to start our day with order as opposed to chaos, it's just been really foundational. And then we did the same thing with evening routines. So at bedtime, we read a story and then we do a prayer. Um, and when my kids were little, um, we had this book, and we still have it, we just don't use it because it's too childish now, um, but it's called Psalms for Young Children. Mm -hmm. And it has beautiful illustrations on the left-hand page. And on the right-hand page is a Psalm that is, put in kid-friendly language. And it's not all 150 of them, it's probably 30, 40 of them. But we would let our, our child pick whichever picture they like the best that day. And then we'd read the Psalm to them as an act of prayer. Um, there's also a great book called Our Father. It doesn't have the ending, it's, it's put out by a Catholic publisher, so it doesn't have for nine as a kingdom, the power, et cetera. Um, but it just, it has great illustrations that are illustrating each phrase of the Lord's prayer. And so we would use that. And so it, it helped teach my kids the Lord's prayer. Um, and so now that's part of their nighttime prayer routine um, because we just started it from a young age. Um, and I think if you have older kids and you're trying to establish that to still say, okay, what does a nighttime routine look like? Like we do this and then we do this. And, and then you're building that same kind of habit, right? Like you brush teeth, you read a story or older child, you know, reads a book to themselves and then invite them to experiment with some different prayer practices. Because I don't know that you have to do the same prayer practice every day for 21 days. If you're establishing a habit, it's just engage in the act of prayer and be willing to experiment to say for you or your child, you know, I'm going to try centering prayer. I'm going to try the daily office. I'm going to try Lectio Divina. I'm going to try um, journaling, you know, I had youth when I would teach this at a previous church that they turned on a worship song and they were just focused with the worship music for that one song. And that was their prayer practice and they loved it. Um, so whatever it is, like invite uh, experimentation 
to find what works for them. Um, but I think that routine is is really kind of key there. Yeah, and, and I love the just the variety of examples that you're even giving today and your book is is full of them. So if a person wants to get started, what what are your tips for somebody who, you know, everybody's prayed at some point, but somebody who hasn't really moved into an intentional life of prayer, like what 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 are your tips for for getting started? Yeah. Um, I think be willing to be experimental. Um, you know, and I appreciate how much you've you've brought out that my book does offer those varieties of kinds of prayer because that was one of the goals I had. I wanted to teach about in a in a very easy way, a variety of forms of prayer to encourage that experimentation, to say it doesn't have to look like I'm going to kneel beside my bed and give God my list of things, um, that it can look like a, a variety of things and be willing to try those out. Um, I said, I think earlier that I think, you know, as we are are gifted in different ways with temperament and personality, um, there, so there are different prayer practices that work better for some of us. And by work better, what I mean is facilitate that connection to God more quickly and easily than others. Um, one of the things I found in my life as, a, as an example is, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, you got to read scripture daily. And, you know, I get that through the daily office. But I've never found just sitting down with my Bible and reading as a prayer practice particularly fruitful. And I think part of that is that I find interacting with scripture in sermon prep, in Bible study prep, super fruitful, but it also feels like work. Mm -hmm. And so as much as I love that work and enjoy that work, and God says things to me through that work, it feels like work if I try to go utilize it in a prayer practice. And I think that's fine. You know, so for me, what works and keeps scripture as a part of my prayer practice is the daily office. Um, for somebody else, you know, centering prayer like Dio Divina, or they, you know, I've got in, in my book a Bible reading plan um, and four different tracks that you can go through over the course of a year. And so that may be that that works great for them. And that's great. You know, it's, it's so I think, you know, I could say a lot of things, but I really think being experimental um is really the key to that um and maybe i would shamelessly say buy my book so that you can uh you know get some help in figuring out what some of those types of prayers are no your your book is really clear and i can imagine groups using it i can imagine if a pastor wants to kind of preach through it in a way and then go chapter by chapter there's a lot of uses for your book in the local church and 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 Surely, uh, it's, it's just to almost be trite. God knows we could use more prayer in all of our churches, and so it's a it's it's an excellent, outstanding resource. And and again, you mentioned you and bring in the scripture reading path, uh, the scripture reading plans, and so in a sense, I mean, your book is uh, almost like a little mini rule of life instruction guide. Mm. It's not exactly that, but I've you can kind of almost read it that way because you have daily office, and so again. I uh, just want to say great job. And it's um and it's not that long either, folks. So you can just this is a book you can pick up and read through it. And it's um well written and easy to read and not insulting the author by saying it's easy to read. It's intentionally written so that you know you can read it without being a theologian. And that's what uh, God knows we need that in the church as well. So uh, mm -hmm, thank you absolutely. for for producing that. Um, you uh -huh. mentioned already you might write a book on 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 Sabbath, but I mean, is that what literally what's next for you in terms of your writing or your ministry, or is there something else that's really on your heart that you'd love to engage with at some point? Yeah, well, I, I think 
the next book probably will be around Sabbath. That was what I did my doctoral work in. Um, my family has a long history now of practicing Sabbath. Um, so it comes from a place of recognizing the benefits for us. <clears throat> I'm about to start teaching it here. Um, and part of that is part of that is the group that I was teaching my book to said they wanted to keep meeting and they wanted to help me write my next book, which was really generous and beautiful. And um, so I said, okay, well, let me teach you on this. Um, but I also think that it is something that this church could benefit from, um, especially our families that have kids at home are running from thing to thing to thing. Um, and the people we have here who are like me, very driven, um, you know, really want to give of themselves and have a tendency to overcommit. Um, because one of the things that Sabbath, I think, helps do is help establish some good boundaries and, the, you know, and help teach the true freedom really lies within boundaries. Um, go ahead. Yeah, let me uh, just follow up. And I don't want you to have to give too much of your next book away with the question. But, you know, I'm curious, you just mentioned you found your family, you have young children. So you understand the hectic um, racing around taking kids places that most families face these days. Uh, not just clergy, but just every everybody has a, a very hectic schedule. So like, what's one thing about Sabbath that, you know, maybe someone, when they hear the word, they're thinking legalism, don't mow the grass or something like that. But yeah. what have you found really works with your family that you're able to have this space? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what my kids have called it. They don't call it Sabbath. They call it, at least especially when they were younger, they call it family home day. Ah, nice. Or they call it adventuring day. Um, you know, the great rabbi Abraham Heschel, to, who wrote like the magisterial work on Sabbath that also is incredibly inaccessible um, in <laughs> yeah. terms of just the density of it. Uh, but he said on the seventh day, you know, God rested, right? But Heschel says on the seventh day, God created joy and respite and repose. Mm. I think I got the three words right. So Sabbath is designed as a cessation of work in order to enjoy the things that God has given us to enjoy and to be restored. Um, I think about the word recreation is really is literally re-creation. So we are recreated by the Sabbath. Uh, and so the way we have done that practice is from, I mean, kind of in traditional Jewish fashion, but only because it worked for our schedule, not as some legalism, uh, is Dinner time Friday until Sunday morning is when we have family home day or adventure day or Sabbath, as it would be called religiously. Um, and it's not a time of, you know, tons of worship or, uh, you know, lots of prayer or it is literally just we enjoy each other. We do things that bring us joy and we cease doing things that feel like work or obligation. I love it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Talk a little talk a little bit about, I mean, beyond your morning with the coffee with your prayer, but like what does um what's a typical day look like for you in terms of kind of a rule of life? And you know, you don't speak you can be as personal as you want to be, or but like yeah. in general, what kind of what really keeps you grounded for you know a life of ministry? Yeah. Um, there's three things that I'm gonna reach over here just because one of them is relatively new and I gotta remind myself of it. But um I think the first thing is Sabbath. Uh, as I was just describing, um, you know, that's the main thing. It's not a day, but it's a rhythm of life that keeps me grounded. 
Um, running is one of those things, um, you know, that time to clear my head. <clears throat> and um, a lot of times it's communing with God. Um, I think one of the things that's really helpful is um, I have a routine when I come in the office, I get here before anybody else does. Um, part of that is just my kids have to go to school so early and I'm already up. And so it's, I can piddle around the house or I can go ahead and come in. So the first thing I do is sermon work. I don't check my email, you know, cause that's gonna pull me in directions. I don't respond to messages. Um, I just, I come in here and I'm focused on the sermon and then the day can pull me where it needs to pull me. Um, and it also means that the sermon gets the first fruits of my time. Um, which I think is important. And then I have adopted a rule of life. Um, there's a great place in um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the address is Adrian, Georgia, east of Dublin, Georgia, called Greenbaugh House of Prayer. Mm. And they you, you go on prayer retreats, you get spiritual direction. Um, it's a beautiful and wonderful place. I call it the Methodist Monastery. I'm not sure uh, how much faith Stephen Oliver, the the three folks who run it, I don't know if they would how they would feel about calling it that, but that's how I think about it because it functions kind of like a monastery that invites people to come and be part of their life. Um, but I'm going to become in a couple of weeks what they call an associate, which is somebody who is committed to the Greenbow rule of life. And the Greenbow mm -hmm. rule, that's why I pull up, put it in the back of my journal. Um, it's centered in the Shema, love God, love neighbor. Uh, and then it has seven components. So sacrament of the present moment, being present with what's happening around you and seeing where God is moving, prayer, simplicity, silence and solitude, spiritual direction, spiritual reading, and Eucharist. Mm. And so I, you know, from time to time, think through and, and go back to this and make sure that I'm I'm covering those things. Um, that I'm not letting like reading is something that I'll read for pleasure at night, but reading for my profession is something that sometimes get, I drop the ball on. And so, um, you know, the spiritual reading being sixth, I'll go back, okay, I need to, you know, work that back into my routine. Um, or simplicity will call me away from the ways that I'm feeling overwhelmed and, you know, things are complex or whatever to remind me that, you know, the call of God is ultimately simple, not in a super easy to understand, but in a, there's a clarity there. And I need to continue to see God in that through prayer. And so, um, you know, that rule of life with Sabbath and um, the way I structure my work days, I think is, is really what grounds me. Thank you. And now the, I think the hardest question I ask everybody, especially people that read a lot, is uh, if you're just going to narrow things down to two or three books that are other than the scriptures themselves that have shaped you spiritually and that maybe you would consider to be like must reads, what, what, what would a couple of those books be? Yeah, actually, um, you know, because you sent me the questions before and I looked at my wife and I said, what books do I talk about all the time? That's good. <laughs> because I couldn't shorten the list on my own. Um, so she helped me a lot. Um, two of them are religious. One of them is not. So um, Celebration of Discipline by Richard mm -hmm. Foster. Um, that is what helped me be experimental with my own spiritual disciplines, because it just here's a whole bunch of spiritual disciplines. And I'm going to tell you about them. And, you know, then I tried them out. And that was really formative for me. I read that before I was a pastor and I've taught out of it several times. Um, the Psalms and the Life of Faith by Walter Brueggemann. 
you know, and that's where he talks about the orientation, disorientation, reorientation. It opened up the Psalms to me. It made the Psalms a prayer partner for me. Um, and I think about life in terms of seasons of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So that's been huge. Yeah. Um, and then in my leadership, Stephen M. R. Covey's book, The Speed of Trust, mm. has just been huge because I think about how much dysfunction slows down mission. Yeah. And how important it is to build trust. And especially right now, I'm 10 months into this appointment. Um, and it was a big jump from my previous church in terms of responsibility and you know all those things. Uh, so I, I've gone back to that over and over again of saying job one here is build trust. Everything else will fall into place in time if I have the trust of the congregation. Amen. It's good. It's good. No, that's awesome. Those are your three great books too. Thank you. And I wasn't, I'm not as familiar with the Co Covey book, but I, I agree with that sentiment. So thank you. Mm -hmm. um, where can listeners find your book uh, mm -hmm. or changes us? And also where can they find out more about you and maybe connect with you if they're, yeah. if they're interested? Um, so my book is on Amazon. Um, it's Kindle uh, as well as paperback. Um, and so that's, I think the easy, you can also go to the South Carolina advocate press and get it as an ebook download or order it directly from the publisher. Um, and I think I'm going to double check since I'm sitting on my computer. Uh, I think their website is, is advocatesc.org. So advocatesc.org. Um, so I think that's the easiest way to get the book is them or Amazon. Um, and then I got to say, this is bad for an aspiring author. I guess I am an author now that I have a book out, um, but I'm not great with social media. Uh, I have it. I post from time to time. Um, and so Facebook, Twitter, like I'll get those alerts and that's a way to connect with me. Um, but I am happy to share my email. And so if people want to follow up with me via email, um, that's fine as well. And so um, I don't know what the easiest way is to share that in an audio format, but um, I also have a website, techgoshorn.org. And, um, you know, you can send me messages through that. Um, I post all my sermon manuscripts there because I have church members that like to go back and read. Okay. So you can, you know, go back through basically every sermon I've preached for the last several years. And I have those there. Right. And I'll have links to all the different books that most of the ones that Ted recommended and also the ones that he actually just mentioned in passing. So you've given a lot of resources for folks that if they want to go a little bit deeper and we'll have links to Ted's website and also places where, where you can purchase and pick up a copy of uh, Prayer Changes Us. Okay, uh, great. Ted, thank you very much uh, for being my guest today. Grateful to hear some of your story hear your wisdom. And I'm always grateful just for uh, pastors and local churches that are out on the front lines, uh, doing the work, leading God's people and trying to uh, promote the love of God and neighbor in our world. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak about an area of passion in my life. And thanks everyone for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope to others.